That's Sonia Shah, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamyan. This edition of AR features Sonia Shah on outbreaks from epidemics to pandemics. Can you believe it? A hundred thousand U.S. dead and counting. The real number, according to Dr. Anthony Fauci, the leading infectious disease expert, is almost certainly higher. A World Health Organization official warns that the coronavirus may become endemic. That is to say, like HIV, it may never go away. Science writer and author Sonia Shah states, over the past 50 years, more than 300 infectious pathogens have either emerged or re-emerged, appearing in places where they've never been seen before. Years before the sudden arrival of COVID-19, 90% of epidemiologists predicted that one of them would cause a deadly pandemic sometime in the next two generations. Unfortunately, they were right. By examining the stories of pandemics past, we can better understand our own future and to prepare for what it holds in store. Our guest today is Sonia Shah. She's a science journalist and author. Her articles have appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and Scientific America. She's the author of Pandemic and The Next Great Migration. She spoke at Google headquarters in Mountain View, California in 2016. Although recorded then, this program presents valuable insights, information, and history. And now, Sonia Shah. I have spent the last six years looking at pandemics. Um, and when I first started writing this book, this is my fourth book. I certainly didn't think we'd actually be living through a pandemic of a brand new pathogen right when it came out. But, of course, here we are with the Zika virus washing over the Americas. And it's um, a really good example of what's been going on sort of globally, which is that we've had, over the past 50 years, over 300 infectious pathogens that have either newly emerged or re-emerged into new places where they never have been seen before. So Zika is really just the latest one. We've had Ebola in West Africa, where it hadn't been seen there before. Um, novel kinds of avian influenzas that infect um, birds and also some of them infect humans. New kinds of coronaviruses that cause diseases like SARS. A new one that's coming out of the Middle East called Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. Um, new kinds of tick-borne illnesses, mosquito-borne viruses from dengue to chikungunya to um, West Nile virus. So the sense that a pandemic, that is an outbreak of disease that starts in one part of the world and then spreads like a wave across global populations, is definitely growing. And that's not just the opinion of sort of the worried well, as they call us, but also experts. This was a survey that was done in 2006 of um, emerging disease experts, and the majority said that a pandemic that would sicken a billion people, kill 165 million, and cost the global economy $3 trillion would occur sometime in the next two generations. So the big question is, of course, which pathogen is going to cause this death and destruction? And we have a lot of potential candidates. 
It's 150,000 species of bacteria, nearly a million viruses that can infect mammals. So picking out which one of these will cause the next pandemic may not be so easy. But while we can't know which one, we can potentially know how it happens because historically only a very few microbes have been able to cause pandemics. We've had Yersinia pestis, which caused the plague, um, influenza, which causes influenza pandemics, variola, which causes smallpox, HIV, which causes the ongoing HIV pandemic. And then the fifth one is cholera. And this is the one that interests me the most, in part because it's very deadly. Cholera kills uh, about half of the people who get it um, if they're not rapidly treated. But also because cholera is one of the most successful of our pandemic-causing pathogens. It hasn't caused just one or two pandemics. It's actually caused seven. And the latest one is going on right now, just a few hundred miles off the coast of Florida and Haiti. So we think of cholera today as a poor person's disease. And, and that is basically true now. But it wasn't true when cholera was a brand new disease. When cholera first emerged in the 19th century, it hit some of the most advanced cities of the time. Cities like New York, which was plagued by repeated epidemics of cholera in the 1800s. Um, and not just New York City, London, Paris, New Orleans, all these places were plagued by this scourge. And thousands of people died. But it wasn't just deadly. The, these, these epidemics are very disruptive as well. And this is sort of a hallmark of new pathogens, which is when they emerge, people don't know why they suddenly arrived. They don't know how they're transmitted, how they're spread between people. And they often start to blame each other. So in the 1830s, the cholera was blamed on the Irish. In the 1840s, it was the Muslims. By the 1890s, it was the Eastern Europeans who were getting blamed for the cholera. And this wasn't just sort of social exclusion. This was actually violent, violent assaults as well. But it wasn't just marginalized groups that were attacked during these outbreaks of disease. It was also healthcare workers. So doctors were routinely stoned in the streets during cholera outbreaks. Quarantine hospitals were surrounded by mobs. A lot of them were burnt down. So the question I wanted to ask is, how does a microbe cause all of this death and disruption? I mean, if you think about a microbe, it's, it's this little tiny microscopic thing with no independent locomotion at all. And yet it can cause all of this devastation and impact human history in such a profound way. And so what I wanted to look at is what are the drivers that turn a microbe into a pandemic? Cholera started in the environment, which is where a lot of new microbes are coming out of today. It, came, it comes out of a place called the Sundarbans, where the major rivers of South Asia drain into the Bay of Bengal. And the water here is half salty, half fresh. It's quite warm. It's quite alkaline. And the bacteria that causes cholera actually lives naturally in this environment and in similar environments around the world. It lives in conjunction with zooplankton. And it actually is a peaceful and useful inhabitant in that environment. It helps recycle nutrients. And for a long time, people didn't live in places like the Sundarbans, of course. It's covered in mangrove swamps. There's crocodiles. There's tigers. There's cyclones. It's flooded by the tides twice a day. That all changed, of course, when the British Raj decided to colonize the Sundarbans and turn it into rice farms. And this happened over the course of the 19th century. Over 90% of the Sundarbans was settled by people. 
So quite suddenly, humans had invaded the habitat of the cholera bacteria, and this allowed the bacteria to spill over into our bodies. And inside the human body, the cholera bacteria performs a very different function than it does in its natural environment. So if you ingest a little bit of cholera bacteria, the bacteria will line the interior of your gut. And it actually reverses the normal functioning of that organ so that instead of nourishing the tissues and the body with fluids, the cholera-infected gut actually extracts fluids out of the body and expels them in a massive torrent of watery diarrhea and vomiting. In fact, a person infected with cholera can lose 15 liters of fluid a day, and that's what kills you from cholera. You basically just dehydrate to death, you desiccate. It can happen in a matter of hours. So the first pandemic of cholera began in the Sundarbans in 1817. It started traveling up into Russia, out into this newly industrializing cities of the old world. But of course, to cause a pandemic, it has to spread across to global populations. It would have to cross the Atlantic. And all of this was happening right at the transition from sail to steam. So instead of taking eight weeks to cross the Atlantic, over the course of the early 1800s, suddenly it was taking more like one week. And once we started building steamships, we could go not just down our rivers, but up them as well. And then we used steam engines to build canals, like the Erie Canal, which opened in 1825. So we had this nice network of waterways. It's like a highway system. And it was perfect for cholera to come over from London and Paris, over the Atlantic, into Canada, and then filter throughout the interior of North America. And of course, at this time, we were urbanizing really rapidly. This was a new form of living in cities. People are rushing out of the farms into the cities for new factory jobs. Um, places like New York City were becoming incredibly crowded. Of course, there were no you know, subway hookups and um, highways to let people sprawl outside of the city center. So everyone had to live near work or the possibility of work. In the most crowded parts of New York City, there was about 77,000 people per square kilometer. So when they're crowded, that's six times more crowded than modern-day Tokyo. It's also 1,000 times more crowded than anyone had ever lived before. Brand new way of living. So suddenly, people were really close together, breathing each other. They're touching each other more. And they also created a huge sanitary crisis. So when people moved from the farms to the cities, they didn't, they didn't come up with a new way of managing human waste. They basically just used that old system in the new place. And the old system was simply to use outhouses and privies and cesspools and let the human waste just kind of sink into the ground and decompose. So that works okay in places where there's not a lot of crowding and there's enough room for, and space for this stuff to decompose. But that's not what happened in New York City when, and similar industrializing cities. Across New York, there's about one-twelfth of the city was covered with cesspools, privies, and outhouses. There was no sewer system to carry the stuff away and to treat it. So all of this material was allowed to simply sink into the ground, spill over into the streets, spill over into people's wells, and then down into the groundwater. The typical 19th century New Yorker was ingesting about two teaspoons of fecal matter every day. So you can imagine when cholera came into a city like that, it just exploded. And this happened time and time again. Now, there were things that they could have done even back then. But there were political problems, too. 
So the public health infrastructure had just started out. And meanwhile, this was the era of the robber barons. Private interests had become incredibly powerful. And when they objected to certain public health measures, they were not enacted. For example, in 1832, the governor of New York actually sent a doctor up to um, upstate New York and Canada to see what was happening, to do surveillance, see if cholera is going to threaten the city of New York. And this is the data that that doctor collected in 1832, which we've mapped. It shows a pretty clear picture. <laughs> cholera is coming down the Hudson River, it's coming down the Erie Canal, and it's heading straight for New York City. So the obvious thing then would have been to enact a quarantine on the waterways, but they didn't because private interests decided that that would be far too disruptive to trade. And so cholera was allowed to come down these waterways again and again. In fact, there were companies that were making money selling cholera-contaminated water to the people of New York. The epicenter of a lot of the cholera epidemics happened in a slum called Five Points. If you've ever seen the movie um, Gangs of New York, the Martin Scorsese movie, that's actually about Five Points. So this was the epicenter of a lot of the cholera epidemics. And this slum, unlike the rest of Manhattan, which is built on bedrock, this slum was actually built on what was once a pond. It was the only source of fresh water in Manhattan. That pond had been filled up with garbage, and then the slum had been built on top of it. So the ground underneath the slum was very unstable, it was low-lying, um, and of course the groundwater underneath it was very easily contaminated with all of the outhouses and privies of the slum on top of it. But the company that the state of New York chartered to, to deliver drinking water to the people of New York, rather than tap upstream sources of water, which they knew would be fresher and which would taste better, they decided to save money, kind of like what happened in Flint, Michigan. They sank their well right in the middle of that slum. And they delivered that water to one-third of the people of New York. And this happened repeatedly throughout the 1800s. And the reason they did that, actually, the, the person who was behind all of these machinations that allowed this to happen was the notorious Aaron Burr, who we all love to hate now, <laughs> um, the bad boy of the, of the American founding. Um, and the reason he did that is because he wanted to start a bank. The bank of the Manhattan Company, of course, which ended up being incredibly powerful. Do any of you guys know what the Bank of Manhattan Company is called today? It's J.P. Morgan Chase. <laughs> biggest, biggest bank in the country. So it wasn't just political defenses that failed, it was also medical defenses that failed. Doctors simply applied their thinking on old diseases to the new disease. So the old way of thinking about diseases was that they were caused by what were called miasmas. These were basically stinky airs that rise up from decomposing organic material. And the idea is that these stinky airs, if you inhale them, you get sick. I mean, this is based on a 2,000-year-old Hippocratic theory. And it made a certain amount of sense for old diseases like, say, malaria, which isn't carried by stinky air, but certainly the mosquitoes that carry malaria would be more likely to exist in these sulfurous airs around swamps and things like that. But when applied to a new disease, like cholera, miasmatism could make the disease much worse. So, for example, in the city of London, over the course of the 17 and 1800s, people had started installing water closets, or what we know as flush toilets. 
And they thought this would be really healthy for them because it would get rid of all the bad smells of human waste. You know, you rid the, stu- rid the smells out of your home, out of your street, and just flush it all away. So, but the thing is, they, they didn't care about the contents of the flush toilets. All they cared about was the smell. So they didn't mind that the contents of all of these flush toilets was dumped directly into the River Thames, which was their drinking water. And in fact, after every cholera outbreak, the people of London installed more flush toilets to dump more of their human waste into the drinking water rather than less. So the other question I want to ask is, could this happen again? And I went around to places where new pathogens are emerging today to try to see how the story of cholera could shed light on what might happen with these other new pathogens. And what I found is those same drivers that brought cholera into human populations in the 19th century are being recreated today, but on a global scale. So we're invading wild habitat on a scale never seen before, and that's because our populations are growing and also our industrial developments are growing. And what this means is that we're disrupting and invading a lot of wildlife habitat. And as we do that, humans come into novel, intimate contact with different wild animals, wild species. And that allows the microbes that live in their bodies to spill over into our bodies. And a great example of that is Ebola. So this whole swath of the continent of Africa has been deforested pretty steadily, not just because of urbanization and you know, farms growing and mines and things like that, but also because of political violence. Those three countries on the westernmost side of Africa, Sierra Leone, Guinea, and Liberia, where those three countries meet was once one of the most biodiverse forests in the world. But over the course of the 1990s, there was an incredibly complex political conflict, very bloody, went on for years. And one result of that was 600,000 refugees fled into that forest to escape the fighting. And what we now know is that whole area that's been deforested overlaps pretty well with the habitat of fruit bats. And fruit bats, as we now know, is a reservoir of Ebola virus. And as people come into novel, intimate contact with fruit bats, the viruses and microbes that live in bats spill over into our bodies. And that's exactly what happened in December 2013 when a two-year-old child who lived near that deforested area by the why those three countries meet, we know he was playing near a tree where bats were known to roost. And so maybe he touched some bat saliva or some bat excreta. However it happened, the Ebola virus from the bat got into this boy's body and he got sick. And before he died, he infected his family members. And they infected their healthcare workers. And they infected their family members until we had the biggest outbreak of Ebola in history, bigger than all previous outbreaks of Ebola combined. Over 11,000 people died. But this isn't just happening in far-off places. This is happening right here in the United States, too. West Nile virus, for example. West Nile virus is a virus of migratory birds. They come from Africa. They fly over here by the millions every year because, especially in places like New York, it's on a flyaway, so they, they land here a lot. But we didn't have West Nile virus in people until 1999 because we had a very diverse bird flock around us. We had birds like woodpeckers and rails and other bird species, and those birds actually repelled the virus. 
So as long as you have a lot of diverse bird species around, including woodpeckers and rails, you don't have that much West Nile virus around in your domestic bird flocks, and you're not so likely to get uh, West Nile virus in humans. But what happened over the past 25 years is we've lost a lot of that biodiversity. So right now, actually, in the last 25 years, American robin populations have doubled as the woodpeckers and rails have vanished. So, of course, robins and crows can live in any kind of broken environment, but woodpeckers and rails can't. And it turns out that, unlike woodpeckers and rails, robins and crows are excellent amplifiers of West Nile virus. So the fewer woodpeckers and rails you have around, and the more robins and crows you have around, the more West Nile virus you have around. And the more likely it is that a mosquito will bite a bird, an infected bird, and then bite a human and trigger an epidemic. And that's exactly what happened in 1999 with the first outbreak of West Nile virus in New York City. And since then, the virus has steadily spread across the nation. Similarly, in the northeastern forest, when it was intact, we had a diversity of woodland species. We had chipmunks, we had a possum, we had deer, we have tick, uh, deer and mice. And these animals helped control tick populations. The typical opossum actually destroys 6,000 ticks a week through grooming. But what we've done is we've broken this forest up into a little patchwork quilt as we've expanded our suburbs into the northeastern forests. And opossums can't, and chipmunks, they don't survive well in that broken environment. What we do have a lot of is deer and mice. Well, while the typical opossum will destroy 6,000 ticks a week, the typical mouse destroys about 50 ticks a week. So the fewer opossums you have around and the more mice you have around, the more ticks you have around. And the more likely it is that an outbreak of tick-borne disease will happen in humans, and that's exactly what happened in, 19, in the late 1970s in Connecticut with the first outbreak of Lyme disease. And that has steadily crossed the country as well. We have about 300,000 Americans diagnosed with Lyme disease every year. So we're driving pathogens into human populations in all these different ways, but then we're also offering them these fantastic amplification opportunities, just like those slums in New York City in the 19th century. So that process of urbanization that started back then is really reaching its peak now. By 2030, the majority of the human species will live in cities. And they're not going to be cities like New York and Seattle. They're going to be cities more like Monrovia and Freetown. Lots of ad hoc development, not a lot of infrastructure, and a lot of slums. About 2 billion people are expected to be living in slums by 2030. And there are pathogens that are already exploiting this, new pathogens. Ebola is, is one example. When e Ebola, you know, we've had Ebola outbreaks since the 1970s. But they've always been rel relatively small and contained because they never infected any place that had more than a few hundred thousand inhabitants. Within a few weeks of emerging in Guinea in 2013, Ebola had reached three capital cities with a combined population of nearly three million. And this is one important reason why it was such a huge conflagration. Similarly, Zika virus is exploiting urbanization too. We've had Zika at least since the 1940s. But it was, it was carried by a forest mosquito in the equatorial forests of Africa and Asia. And that forest mosquito didn't really bite people that much. It lived in the forest. It mostly bit animals. Today, Zika is being carried by a mosquito called Aedes aegypti. 
This is a mosquito that has dramatically expanded its range as we have urbanized, especially in the tropics. It can breed in a drop of water in a bottle cap. It loves all of our plastic garbage that we leave lying around. And on top of that, it only bites humans. So it's one important reason why Zika is now exploding so dramatically in the Americas. But we're not just offering crowds of people to our pathogens to amplify. We're also offering them crowds of animals. We have more animals under domestication today than in the last 10,000 years of domestication up until 1960 combined. Huge number, number of animals as our demand for meat goes up and demand for protein. And a lot of these animals are being kept in the animal equivalent of a slum, which are these factory farms where there's a million or more individuals crammed really closely together. And this offers pathogens other opportunities to amplify. One example is avian influenza. So avian influenza normally, normally lives in wild waterfowl, like ducks and goose and stuff. And it doesn't really make them sick. But when those viruses drop into a factory farm full of captive chickens, it starts to replicate really wildly and mutate and evolve and become more virulent. And this has happened again and again with increasing frequency as factory farming has spread in Asia where we have most of our wild waterfowl. And some of these mutated viruses can actually infect humans as well. And this is, of course, creating a new sanitary crisis. We have about 2.6 billion people around the world today who have no access to modern sanitation. So they're living in 19th century standards already to this day. But on top of that, we also have 7 billion tons of animal excreta to manage every year. And this is far more than our croplands can possibly absorb, which is how we used to manage animal waste. So what farmers are doing is collecting all this stuff in giant manure lagoons, which is what these pits are called. They're basically just untreated, unlined cesspools of animal waste. And so when it rains or if there's storms, all of this material gets out into the environment. And this is one reason why we have an increasing problem with virulent forms of E. coli. You've probably heard of like killer hamburger virus. Um, this, these are caused by vi viruses like Shiga toxin producing E. coli. And this microbe normally lives in cattle. About half of all American cattle on feedlots is infected with Shiga toxin producing E. coli. It doesn't really make them sick. But because cattle manure so often you know, contaminates our food and water, we have about 70,000 Americans getting sick with Shiga toxin producing E. coli every year. And then, of course, we're carrying this stuff around in the most efficient method possible, which is our flight network. We don't just have a few airports in capital cities, but thousands of airports, even in small towns, and hundreds of thousands of connections between them. So when a pathogen emerges in one part of the world, it can very rapidly spread uh, through the rest of the globe. And in fact, you can predict where an epidemic will strike next simply by measuring the number of direct flights between infected and uninfected cities. So we're driving these pathogens into our populations, but of course we have a lot of defenses, and better defenses now than we did in the 19th century. And yet we still have similar challenges. Of the 100 biggest economies in the world today, only 49 are governments, 51 are corporations. And so when our public health strategies come into conflict with private interests, we're not able to implement them. And a good example of that is antibiotic-resistant bacteria. We've known 
since the 1940s that if you use antibiotics in a way that's not medically necessary, you will trigger the evolution of antibiotic-resistant bacteria. 80% of the antibiotics that are consumed in the United States are used for commercial reasons. That is, it, the farmers give them in low doses to their livestock to help fatten them for market so they can bring them to market faster. So it's really just a tiny sliver of our antibiotic consumption that is medically necessary. And yet attempts to control this have failed again and again since the 1970s. We've just barely started making kind of baby steps towards reigning in this practice. And we have 23,000 people dying of antibiotic-resistant bacteria every year as a result. You're listening to Sonia Shah on outbreaks from epidemics to pandemics. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can order copies of this program by calling 1-800-4-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. In solidarity with you, our listeners, we are offering printed transcripts or PDFs of this program at no charge. Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Now, our medicine is far superior than it was in the 19th century, of course. We can very rapidly come up with cures and drugs and vaccines for new pathogens. But I would argue there's still a mismatch. So a lot of these pathogens are coming out of wildlife, they're coming out of animals, they're coming through human populations being driven by social and political factors. So you would think then that the best way to contain these threats is through a multidisciplinary kind of collaborative process, right? You get the wildlife biologists, you get the ecologists, you get the epidemiologists, you get the doctors, you get the social scientists and the anthropologists and the political scientists, and you approach it that way. But that's not what we do. So we think of contagious disease as solely a biomedical problem. And one example of what happens is dengue in Florida and how that was managed. Um, Dengue viruses carried by mosquitoes, it first emerged in Florida in 2009, hadn't been seen there in 70 years. And we immediately attacked it as a biomedical problem, right? We mobilized our resources to, to target the mosquito, target the virus with killing chemicals sort of, you know, attacked this invasion of mosquitoes and virus. In fact, though, Florida has been surrounded by places where there's dengue for a long time. The mosquitoes that carry dengue have been present in Florida for a long time. So there wasn't actually any invasion to repel. What had happened is in 2008, we had the foreclosure crisis, and it hit Florida particularly hard. And since it's Florida... When there's a lot of abandoned homes around, there's also a lot of empty swimming pools. And when the rains came, all of these abandoned swimming pools started to fill up with standing water. And they became giant mosquito hatcheries. And a year later, we had this unprecedented outbreak of dengue in Florida. Now, would have addressing the housing crisis have helped prevent or even contain the dengue outbreak in Florida? I don't know, because nobody tried that. What I do know is arguably the biomedical response has failed in the sense that we keep attacking dengue, but now it's considered endemic in Florida. Dengue is considered a permanent part of the landscape of Florida today. 
So what can we do about it? This is not a crystal ball, of course. This is not Nostradamus. This is, this is not what's definitely going to happen. This is what's going to happen if we don't change. And there's a lot of things I think we can do to mitigate the risk of pandemics. So our present system of surveillance for new diseases, the best we can do at the moment is start to attack these things when exponential growth of untreatable disease has already begun. And so to contain it at that point, you need almost perfect control. You need to stamp out every single case because you already have exponential growth. But what if you push that back just a little bit? And that is now possible now. We don't know which pathogens are going to cause the next pandemic, but since we do know how, we can predict where. Disease hotspots. It's places where there's a lot of invasion of wildlife habitat, a lot of intensification of agriculture, livestock agriculture, a lot of slums, a lot of um, flight connections, or, or some combination of all of that together. And these are places where scientists believe new pathogens are most likely to emerge. So we can do in these places active surveillance. So that is going out into the environment, looking at wildlife, looking at people on the front lines who are dealing with wildlife, and trying to track how microbes might be changing and stamp them out before they start to spread. And there's an ad hoc sort of group of um, academic groups, NGOs, some government actors who are actually doing this kind of work right now. Of course, all of us need to become responsible citizens, too, in this new age of pandemics. Um, And that's doing some obvious things like washing hands and and staying away from antibiotics, avoiding factory meats and all that. Um, But we also need to just be informed that each pathogen is different. Because I think the big... The big missing piece in the whole way we approach pandemics is public engagement. You know, we really leave this all up to the biomedical experts. Instead, we all need to be sort of engaged in the the rising risks of the way we live today. What the history of pandemics has taught me is that all these things are connected. Human health is connected to the health of our societies, the health of our animals, the health of our wildlife, the health of our ecosystems. These are all connected. So we need to kind of reimagine the way we think of ourselves in this microbial world that we all live in. And ultimately, I think it is possible to prevent pandemics altogether by just changing the conditions that give rise to them. Um, We could do things like restore wild habitats so that microbes that live in animals stay in animals and don't spill over into human bodies. We can do things like protect the health of the most vulnerable among us, the people who are living without sanitation, the people who are living in slums, the animals who are living in their factory farm slums, um, because their health is now you know, very obviously connected to the rest of us, too. And I'm happy to take questions. Thank you so much for listening. You mentioned Zika briefly during your talk. Um, so, yeah, I was just wondering, you know, do you feel like, like, was the Olympics, you know, do you think that could be a big factor in its spread or, you know, or in the big picture, it doesn't really matter much? So Zika virus um, is carried by Aedes aegypti mosquitoes. Um, in August, it will be winter in the southern hemisphere, right? So so the this mosquito is very sensitive to climatic factors. Um, it needs at least a week or two of standing water in order for the eggs to hatch, and then for one mosquito to get infected, you know, it takes, to, takes a blood meal, and then it takes another week for the virus to kind of mature into its life cycle in the mosquito 
before the mosquito has, can bite another person and pass it on. Um, so if it's dry, if it's cool, um, and mosquitoes either don't hatch, there's not enough standing water around for mosquitoes to hatch, or if they don't live as long, because when it's dry, they desiccate really easily, um, that is going to dramatically reduce mosquito populations. And that's the conditions that they're expecting in August. Of course, we're living in a time of disrupted weather patterns. And all you would need is a couple weeks of standing water around in, like I said, tiny, tiny bits. Um, because the eggs of the Aedes aegypti mosquito, they desiccate and then they just, they're all over the environment. And as soon as you just put a little water on them, they come back to life because they can, they can be dormant for weeks or even months. Um, that said, we're not going to stop Zika from coming here. You know, we have about man, millions of Americans going back and forth. And we already, Zika's probably already here in a larger, you know, a larger proportion than we actually know because, of course, 80% of people who get it don't have any symptoms. So we have a lot of silent carriers who can travel and they'll never know that they were infected at all. Um, and even the people who are, who do have symptoms, it's so mild that you wouldn't necessarily get diagnosed. You wouldn't, you would just think, oh, I have a rash, a little fever, like it passes. It's self-limiting. So it's very cryptic. It can travel really far. Zika is going to come, and it's probably already here. What, what could Google do to help track contagions? What would you recommend based on all the different resources and all the different things we can do? Because uh, there's, of course, lots of effort with Google um, putting in sort of volunteer work. For example, when there is the um, tsunami in Japan, they put a ton of resources, used all our tools to try to come up with solutions. What do you think we should do more on an ongoing basis to track contagions? I, I do know there's a lot to be done with mapping and with predicting where these new pathogens are coming out. Like there's new studies showing that you can correlate sort of satellite data of chlorophyll signatures in the water and predict when cholera might outbreak in Bangladesh and elsewhere. And I wonder if there's more ways to do that so that we could actually come up with a kind of forecasting system, like the way we forecast the weather. You know, if we had enough data on in the environment and all these drivers that bring pathogens out and how outbreaks occur, that we could actually have a forecasting, you know, for disease, so a disease forecast, so you could know in advance. And, and that means everything, because time is completely of the essence when you think of, you know, these things that can spread exponentially. So if you know even days or weeks in advance, like you can, there's so much more we can do to save lives and, and to prevent all the disruption of these outbreaks. Um, so I think there's lots of opportunities in that area, especially. Uh, sounds like antibiotic has been a big problem, and it seems that over 70% of antibiotic, antibiotics are used of livestock. How do you think we can tackle this problem? Uh, well, well, we know that in places where they don't use antibiotics commercially and antibiotics are used, as they say, rationally, which is only when they're medically necessary, that they don't have problems with antibiotic-resistant bacteria. So that is a known thing. Um, so the way, the path forward is actually really clear. We need to use these drugs rationally. We need to steward these drugs. We have not done that. We've used them as commodities. And so that, that's the thing. The, the, the thing we have to do is really simple. It's difficult politically, of course, right? So, so that's going to be the big, um, the big hurdle. You know, they, the White House recently passed some, some you know, they, they made some efforts, some initiatives to try to deal with this problem. And... There's two parts to it. One part was let's try to reduce use and, and use these rationally, but first let's you know get a committee to think about it for a couple of years and then like issue some recommendations. On the other hand, the other thing we can do is let's throw a lot of money at drug companies to come up with new antibiotics 
and then we can just keep using them like as badly as we're using them now, but we'll just keep you know getting new ones and getting new ones and getting new ones. Um, right now, drug companies don't want to create a lot of antibiotics because it's not a very good market. I mean, you you know these are drugs you only use for a week or two at most, um, and people have been trained to only want to pay a hundred bucks or so. I mean, we'll pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for a cancer drug that, you know, maybe will extend life for a week at best. But a life-saving antibiotic, you know, we don't want to pay more than $100. So it's not a very good market for them. Um, so that's one of the parts of the initiative is to throw more money and incentives at the drug companies so that they'll actually make us some new antibiotics. Thank you. Um, I've been reading in some journals and articles about the possibility of having male mosquitoes who are infertile, which are infertile and introducing them to the population to try and cut back on mosquito populations. Do you think that's a viable solution to cut back on mosquitoes or do you think that's kind of a stretch? I mean, this is the thing. You, you introduce an infertile male and then, you know, it mates and then they, they, so they have no babies, right? So you've done that once. Now, that trait is not going to get passed down. So there's no, like, sustainable kind of chain of events. You have to just keep doing this, keep introducing more and more of these insects in order to keep controlling the population of mosquitoes. Um, so in that sense, it's not that different than using insecticides. And what we know that when we throw killing chemicals or reduce the ability of living things to reproduce, that they evolve in ways so that they can get around that, you know, because there's very strong selection for animals, to, for creatures to do that. Um, so to me, it's, it's as promising as a new insecticide. It's not any more promising than that. Um, and then you have all the ethical problems of you know, places where they already have a lot of mosquito-borne disease and then, you know, people coming up, white-coated people coming up and releasing more mosquitoes that are, like, special, there's, there's going to be some resistance to that, I think, in local communities that, you know, that, that could be an issue. The other thing is a lot of these diseases that are caused by mosquitoes, you don't have to kill a lot of mosquitoes to control them. There's usually a time period during which the 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 disease or pathogen inside the mosquito has to develop, has to have a life cycle. So malaria takes seven to 10 days. Zika takes around the same amount of time. So you don't need to kill them all. You just need to shorten their lives. So if you just depress the lifespan of mosquitoes so that they don't live long enough to pass on a pathogen, then you can disrupt this, the disease spread altogether. And you won't be working against evolution. Right, because you're going to allow these mosquito populations to survive. You're going to allow them to reproduce. You're just going to kill all the grandmothers, basically. Um, from your talk, I feel um, a huge part of preventing pandemic is from, say, nudging the general uh, public that to pick up like their, say, life habits. Are you aware of any of the current ongoing policy which could help us do it better right now? Changing human behavior is probably the hardest part of all of these things. You know, I mean, we know that sort of washing your hands would prevent the spread of a lot of infectious diseases, and, and people don't do that that well. Um, we have a lot of simple things we could do that require some behavior change that could disrupt a lot of these contagions, but we don't do them. And I think um, a good example of that is bed nets for uh, malaria control where this is a very simple thing to do. You get a bed net, you sleep under it every night, and, you know, you don't get malaria, this killer disease. Well, 
when they first started distributing those nets, like 20% of the people used them. 80% just thought, oh, this is the most fancy thing I've ever owned. I'm going to keep it in this chest. And when, you know, when my fancy uncle comes over, I'll show him that I have this. Or I'll use it for you know, a wedding veil or fishing nets or whatever. Um, so, so that's why so much of public health is about coming up with ways so that we don't have to ask people to change their behavior that much. You know, so how do you engineer um, our architecture or our economy or you know, all these other incentives that shape human behavior? How do you change that part so that doing the disease-free or disease-minimizing behavior becomes easy? You know, it has to be the path of less, less, least resistance. Um, we see even in hospitals that you know, doctors don't wash their hands between patients. You know, I mean, that's that's kind of an amazing thing, right? So simple. But simple solutions, when it comes up to complex human behaviors, you know, turn out to be not so simple. One of the concerns back again towards the Zika, uh, you know, the virus and how likely it is already here in the United States. Um, uh, speaking politically, like what are some of the things in your, in your study or someone in your field that would raise a red flag as, as part of maybe a legislation that would uh, make us more vulnerable to, you know, the, the transmitting and the, you know, the spread of uh, of of this particular you know, virus. Well, well, this is the thing. See, right now we're talking about let's attack the mosquito. We need more money for mosquito control, more insecticides to depress mosquito populations in the south and you know other parts of the United States where we have 80s mosquitoes that could carry Zika virus. And the fact is, it's already too late to do that because these populations of mosquitoes are highly entrenched. You know, they are they are their eggs are everywhere in the environment. Like you could maybe depress their populations for a while, but you're not going to get rid of them anymore. And it's an interesting story of what happened, how we got these mosquitoes. They're both of the 80s mosquitoes that are in this country are invasive species. Um, 80s albopictus, which is the one that about 60% of the United States is vulnerable to. And I live in Baltimore, and there's like tons of these things around. And you guys have them up here, too, I think, when it's hot, like in the summer when it's really hot. Um, that's an invasive mosquito that came over in the used tire trade in the 1970s and 1980s. And... You know, people were bringing tires. These in the in the wild, they live in tree holes. These mosquitoes live in tree holes. So a dark, you know, in dark environment um, with standing water. And think about a tire. I mean, you can never get the water out of a tire, right? So these used tires fill up with some water, and the egg, the mosquitoes lay their eggs in there, and they survive these, you know, for this long travel across from Asia. And we have distributed these tires across the nation. I mean, they're used in uh, they're used for embankments. You know, people throw them over into streams to like um, build up the stream beds for erosion. Um, they're recapped and then put back into rotation. Um, they're also often kept in giant piles next to other giant piles that have been sitting there for a long time. So even if they didn't come over infested with these mosquito eggs, they will get infested, you know, while they're sitting there. And so that's been going on for like decades. And this happened with the full knowledge of our medical entomologists and our medical community that this was happening. Um, so that was the time when we should have been doing the mosquito control. That was the time when we should have said, let's quarantine, inspect, and treat these tires, because we, the U.S. military actually knew that this was happening. It started in the 1940s when all of our surplus uh, war materials were coming back from war zones in Asia, and they found the tires, which is full of all these mosquito eggs, and so they started treating them. 
so it wouldn't lead to you know an invasion of these populations. But once private companies started doing this and bringing these tires and container ships, you know, not just a ship, but like these giant containers and giant, you know, many many containers, um, you know, we just didn't we just didn't do it. So we to- totally dropped the ball. Like that's when the mosquito control should have happened. At this point, I wonder actually if. Um, you know, immunity isn't our best defense against Zika. Once you get Zika, you're, you're, it looks like you don't get it again. That's what, the, that's what the science looks like right now. Of course, a lot more needs to be learned. But given that it is mild, you know, if you have your bout of Zika, you may not even know you have your bout of Zika, but after that, you're immune. Then you can have babies, you can, you know, have sex, do all these things that you're not going to, you know, kind of endanger the child. So that's, of course, the biggest risk. So if we want to build up immunity... <laughs> then it's a real question. Should we depress mosquito populations? Because isn't that, doesn't that mean that fewer people are going to get exposed to this virus? I mean, if we all are able to p- put off childbearing while we develop immunity or protect our pregnant women and protect our childbearing people and let everybody else get immunity, you know, um, to, to me that, it, but it's sort of an anathematic disease. Uh, it's just a, it's a totally disruptive idea. And I think it, the root of it is sort of this idea that we shouldn't be vulnerable to contagion. You know, we had, you know, probably about like 40 years from 1940 to 1980 or so when we didn't, you know, we felt like contagions were under control and we could live this sort of germ-free life. And if we did get an infection, we could just take something and it would be really simple and get over it. And I think that has infiltrated our thinking to such a degree, you know, that when there's these threats that maybe aren't, so bad for most of us, right? I mean, most people are going to be fine with Zika. It's just child. It's just really the microcephaly in children that's the main thing. Um, but we don't think of it that way. It seems to be the advancement of the economy that's really pushed this issue of pandemics, you know, to the main stage. Um, you know, through transportation or economic advancement, going into different areas that weren't developed before. I mean, is there an international coalition that's trying to create standards to prevent this when we actually have, you know, workers going internationally to different areas that never have been inhabited or visited by humans ever to prevent, you know, spreads of different, you know, contagions? Right. So that would be great if there was, you know, but of course there isn't. So this is all unregulated. People can do, you know, people can do what they want. Like, so people go, want to go in Congo and start, you know, a mine there. They just get, you know, the appropriate licensing from some corrupt governments and they can do that. So that's the world we live in. Um, that said, you know, economic growth is still really important for controlling contagions too. I and mean, we saw during the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, that a lot of other nations got really panicked and scared and started to cut down trade and transportation links. And this had a terrible effect on the ability of those countries to control the disease. You know, aid workers couldn't get, come in, commodities couldn't come in. Um, the economy started, you know, these are fragile economies to begin with, and they started to really suffer. Um, and that completely undermines their ability to contain these pathogens. So it's not a one-to-one thing that economic, or, you know, we need both. I mean, we need the... I mean, for getting rid of a lot of these diseases, we need more development and more, you know, more prosperity. Um, diseases like malaria, which are, you know, very much shaped by poverty, just living in poor circumstances. You don't have window screens, you have bad drainage around. Um, lifting people out of poverty through economic development would actually do a lot to control a disease like that. So there's, I mean, my question was more pushing towards, like, there's no measures, let's say, like, done by the CDC. Like, you know, for instance, if you visited Europe 
in said period, you can't, you know, give blood because of mad cow. They don't have anything for workers that come back internationally to, like, screen them properly, like, medically, and make sure that they don't have any of these, you know. I, I think there, there probably is in an ad hoc way, but the problem is we're talking about pathogens that we don't know about. So how do you screen for things that you don't know are there? Um, we don't really have the diagnostics to do that. So that, you know, that, part, that piece of the puzzle would be just technically impossible at the moment. What do you think we didn't do in the last 100 years that we should probably not repeat in the next 100? <laughs> I mean, I think there's so many les- lessons from the past that you know, are still applicable today. So that was sort of my, my main point, is that um, all the ways in which these old pandemics were you know, unfolding are still, you know, are still factors today, in fact, even more so. I'm thinking mostly yeah. about the private public interest. So like Right. So what's happened now and I think it's actually it, it's actually a little more worrisome is that we've divested out of public health to a large degree. Um, the WHO for example, you know, we've been underfinancing that agency since about the 80s. Um, slow, you know, their budget has been getting sl- smaller and smaller every year. In terms of their membership dues from member countries. So what they've done is they've turned to the private sector to do partnerships to maintain their budget. Now, what happens with all of that, so 80% or so of the WHO budget is now coming from these donations. And that can be companies, it can be NGOs, it can be other governments, it can be any kind of entity, really. But the, the problem is they earmark that money. So the WHO is not in charge of the majority of its budget. Other entities are in charge of that, and they, you know, there's no democratic accountability to what they decide. So we know that 91% of those extra budgetary funds, those donated funds that the WHO gets, are given over to diseases that affect 8% of the global disease burden. So it's a huge mismatch. So the WHO is not able to really address our global health priorities because of these, you know, budgeting issues. And we've seen it even with CDC. Now, you know, CDC is getting a lot more money from private interests too. They're doing whole campaigns that are in partnership with, you know, drug companies and sugar, the sugar industry and, you know, a whole bunch of other um, companies because that's how they can, that's how they can continue doing some work at all. You know, when the CDC tried to do gun prevention violence research, the NRI just shut them down and they, you know, killed, slashed a whole big part of their budget. So it's very difficult for these public health agencies to tackle private interests. And what they've been doing more and more is just collaborating. So what we get is public health. You know, we have the Venn diagram of, like, things we can do for public health, things we can do that will protect economic interests, and there's that overlap. And that's what our public health community is able to do today. But all those other things that kind of fall outside of that um, is much harder. Thank you all so much. It's been really lovely being here. That was Sonia Shah on outbreaks from epidemics to pandemics. She spoke at Google headquarters in Mountain View, California in 2016. We felt given the current crisis that it would be valuable to hear the history and background information about viruses. Sonia Shah is an award-winning science journalist and author. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and in our 34th year, we're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature such progressive voices as David McNally, Noam Chomsky, Naomi Klein, and Stephen Bezruchka. 
To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs, MP3s of today's program, Sonia Shah on outbreaks from epidemics to pandemics, just give us a call at one 800 Again, that number is one 800 And in solidarity with you, our listeners, we are offering printed transcripts or PDFs of this program at no charge. Just call us at one 800 Special thanks to Haymarket Books. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening, and please stay safe. Twój najlepszy przyjaciel, Jenny Notz, CJSW 90.9 FM. Na zawsze radio, radio na zawsze. Wow! Thank you.